Hey, thanks for tuning in. The audio presented to you is copyrighted by Oak Ridge Baptist Church. Dear Lord, God, I pray that you would be with me today. Lord, that you would speak through me, that you would use me as your vessel for your message to your people. God, I pray that you would overwhelm me with your grace and your anointing that I might preach with power and that the people in the church today would know you more deeply and serve you more willingly because of the things that I say this morning. God, I pray that you would transform the hearts of the people here so that they could hear you and understand you better and be obedient to your word. And Lord, I ask these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I am not a huge fan of singing patriotic songs in a worship service. Because I think often the church has made it a habit of worshiping the nation and not the creator. But this morning we sang America the Beautiful. And and I think Mike and I were talking about this. We both think that it's appropriate to sing this song as a prayer for our country. I think it is absolutely appropriate for us to call on God to lavish His grace, His unearned favor, His strength and His truth on us. It is good and proper for us to declare the amazing gifts that He has given us as a people. A beautiful land. Amazing cities, strong people, and freedom. We come to a day like the 4th of July. It is easy to get lost in all of the pomp and circumstance or even just the mundane celebration that we do on 4th of July. As I have As we've approached 4th of July, I've seen video after video of either people doing catastrophic firework fails. I don't know why the algorithm thinks that I like that, but I do. (laughs) (laughs) And And it's interesting to see how we as a people celebrate the birth of our nation. We are a people that were born in treason against our government. And so, I almost wore this shirt this morning. (laughs) But calmer heads prevailed. And I didn't. But we are a nation that was born in treason. We rebelled against our government. And that rebellion, in many ways, works itself down in every layer of our culture. We are a people that do not like authority. We are anti-authority. 
And as Christians, we have to be very careful that we do not imbibe that too deeply. That we do not become anarchists. That we do not become rebels. Especially within the church. And so our passage this morning deals with authority within the church. For those of you who have been with us over the last several months, we've been going through the book of 1 Peter. And yes, it's a very short book, and for some reason we've been able to stretch it out to about three months. But it's filled with some incredibly important things about life in a hostile world. And so in chapter 5, as we come into chapter 5, Peter is concluding his message. we got one more sermon after this, one more message. But this chapter is his conclusion. And what is he doing? So for the last several chapters, he's been talking about what it's like to live as people, the people of God, in a hostile world. And we've looked at this. We've examined all of the implications of living in a hostile world. And so he's concluding this letter by telling his readers that their ongoing persecution demands the presence of strong, godly leadership within the church. And I'm going to tie my shoes now so I don't fall on my face. Sorry. There we go. Persecution demands leadership within the church. This is what he tells them. I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as our partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And once again, our scripture begins with a conjunction, right? And we talked about this. Therefore is a word that links everything that's going to happen to everything that came before. And so when we hear, we read, therefore, we need to look to see what comes before. So what is some of the things that he's been talking about? Well, he's telling them that the church is being persecuted by the hostile forces of an evil world. That the people of God are being purified through suffering and persecution, and are being called to stand firm. And throughout this time of suffering, the Christians will be called upon to submit to authority of a government that oppresses them. They're going to be called to live a good, honorable life among people that hate them and attack them. They're being called to stand ready to give a defense for the hope that they have in Christ Jesus, perhaps as they stand on trial for their lives. These people have been sent out into a dangerous world as sheep among wolves, and they are in desperate need of men who will protect and guide them through the dangers. And so because of this, Peter exhorts their leaders because the leadership of God's people is incredibly important during times of crisis. So what does he tell the leaders of this church? Well, the first thing that he does is he begins addressing them by describing himself as an elder. So he's addressing the elders in the church and he's describing himself as an elder. Now, the concept of eldership comes to the church from the Old Testament. 
The elders are the men selected by God to lead his community. These are the people that are recognized from among the the congregation of believers, men of maturity and integrity who are raised up. These are the people that Moses told the people to choose among themselves. Men who would stand up. In the New Testament, we see this term used over and over again. And, and there is some confusion with regards to it. In fact, several weeks ago at the Southern Baptist Convention, the 50,000 churches of the Southern Baptist Convention came together to kind of codify and clarify some of the language. The thing that is confusing is that the Bible uses several different words to describe the same job. First, the word is used poimenioi, which means shepherd. Episcopos, from where we get the word overseer or bishop. And then presbyteros, which means elder. Now, over time, some churches have taken these words and have created separate offices within the church. So for those of you who come from a Roman Catholic background or an Episcopal background or maybe even a Methodist background, you'll see that you have a bishop and then you have a priest and then you have an elder, three separate roles. But within the Bible, what we find is that these terms are used interchangeably, often in the same passage. Somebody will be referred to as a presbyteros, as, a, as an overseer, and then as a shepherd. And we're obviously talking about the same person. We see this in the book of Acts, we see it in the book of Titus, we see it in the book of 1 Peter. These scriptures are used interchangeably for a person responsible for administering, preaching, and teaching within the church. This is an elder. So when we look at church structure within the New Testament, what we see is there's three offices within the church. There's an elder, there's a deacon, and there's a third one, there's a church member. Each of them have qualifications and responsibilities. If you are a member of the church, you have responsibilities in the kingdom of God. You have responsibilities to each other. And yes... There are conditions that a person has to meet before they become a church member. In fact, all authority within the church ultimately lies with the church members. And you should understand that. That's one of the reasons that at Oak Ridge and at a lot of churches, we practice what's called regenerate church membership. We want to make sure that you're saved before you're a church member. Well, well why do we want to do that? Because you guys are the ones making the decisions. In a very real sense, you are the inmates and you're running the asylum. Okay? Why do we do that? Well, because you guys are, we are all equal before God, right? We're all the priest of believers, the priesthood of believers. Everybody here has equal access to God. I'm not special. I, I don't have like a special hotline where I can call up God and be like, hey, God, seriously, give me the skinny on this. 
I know some Greek, I know some Hebrew, I went to seminary for a long time, not because I got a lot of education, it just took me a long time to get through there. You guys are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit works through you, okay? And throughout Scripture, the people of God are held responsible for the maintenance of the community. When one of the believers falls into sin in 1 Corinthians, Paul doesn't say, I'm going to issue judgment on him. He says, y'all need to issue judgment on him. And then when he repents, he says, y'all need to restore him. Jesus says that in the book of Matthew. Throughout the New Testament, there is this picture that God's people are responsible for guarding the boundaries of their association. And not just that, they're also responsible for guarding their hearts, their minds, and their ears against bad doctrine. What does Paul say? He says, even if an angel of the Lord, even if an angel of light were to come to you and preach a gospel different from the one that you've received, even if I come and preach you a gospel different from the one that you've received, let that one be accursed. Later on, he tells them that they need to test every spirit. At the end of the day, the congregation is responsible for guarding their hearts and their minds. But this doesn't mean that the congregation is an anarchy. Throughout the history of God's people, God has raised up men, and in some cases women, to guard and guide His people. And so Peter is reaching out to those men, those elders within the church that have been raised up to shepherd this group of God's faithful. What does he say? In Acts 20, we're told, pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flocks to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so there is this this. this tension or this balance between God's people receiving God's word and functioning together and the men that God raises up to lead those people to shepherd and to guide them as they all attempt to understand God's word together. That burden on that elder or those elders is intense. The elders... Pastors and overseers are synonymous terms of the man that God has chosen to exercise authority over his people. Well, Peter then establishes the basis of this necessary authority. And so we have this kind of next part of the passage where he reminds them of who he is, right? He reminds the elders that they are receiving this message that they both witness, that they are both witnesses of the suffering of Christ, what on earth does that mean? It does not mean that only, el- that only those that saw the crucifixion could become elders. Because Peter didn't witness the crucifixion of Jesus. He ran away. And the people that he's talking to are Greeks that were nowhere near Jerusalem. So the word witness that he's using here means something different. It's actually the word that we get martyr from. These are the 
men that have been raised up to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are the people that are giving witness to what Jesus has done. He's saying, look, I am a witness and you're a witness. But then he says something else. Not only are they witnesses together, he also reminds them that they're going to share in the glory that is going to be revealed. This is the sure and the certain hope of the resurrection. He's saying, look, we're both witnessing to what Jesus did, and we're all waiting for Jesus to return in glory. Now, why does he remind him of this? Because God has established a structure of authority in his church. But that authority is not based on the power or prestige or wealth or fame. It's not based on any of the things, the earthly standards that we all love. No. It's based on something else. It's based on an exercise in conformity to the life and the work of Jesus. All authority within the church is based on the authority of Christ. And all authority in the church is lived out within the example of Christ. See, God is not a God of anarchy. He has established structures of leadership and authority within the church. And we need to remember that, guys. Because we live in a transgressive age. I heard a man describe it that way. He said that oftentimes the news media describes this, this kind of movement, this woke movement pushing us forward as progressivism, but it's not. It's really transgressive. Progressive means we're moving forward towards something, that we're trying to perfect what's there and, and move towards a, a, greater, a greater good. That's a movement that kind of came out of the early 1900s. Um, Teddy Roosevelt was a progressive. It's, the, it's the, the, the movement that brought us the national park system and that brought us food safety laws and things like that. We're going to use the power of government to make everything better for everyone. That's progressivism. The movement that we have now has a fundamentally different view of reality. See, the movement that kind of has taken over the upper echelons of our country believes that all structures of power are fundamentally bad. That all authority is fundamentally bad. That human beings are essentially good and that structures of authority cause us to sin. We've talked about this before. Laws cause people to become criminals. Police officers cause violence. That's why in most of our major cities, we have laws on the books now, or there are people who are trying to put laws on the books that prevent police officers from enforcing the law. The logical outcome of believing that laws cause crime is the idea that if you stop enforcing laws, then crimes go away. The problem with that is it never works. We had an experiment several years ago in Seattle. You guys remember that? The Seattle Autonomous Zone. Guess what? It was not paradise. It's almost like if you take all the police away, you know what has to happen? Hipsters have to start carrying machine guns to keep the peace. Because it's who we are as a people, guys. We have to be constrained by law. God understands that. That's why he establishes authority. And yet we live in a transgressive age where we are, in, we are immersed in this culture that seeks to break down all forms of authority. 
Now, is there illegitimate authority? Absolutely. Guess what? When the federal government comes to you and tells you that you can't open a church or that you can't sing when you're in church, that's illegitimate authority. They can't tell us to do that. But is there legitimate authority? Yes. When the government comes in and says you can't drive 80 in a school zone, that's legitimate. So there is legitimate authority and there is illegitimate authority. There is, a, that is, there is authority that constrains the wickedness of the human heart and there is authority that seeks to cause the wickedness in the human heart. And we as believers, we have to measure between the two of them. And we can't throw out legitimate authority because authority has been abused in the past. And this is an important thing within the church. See, we've gone through a season, and really in some cases are in a season, where every mistake that every pastor makes is put out there for us to see. We're shown over and over and over again all of the bad stuff that happens in churches that have authority. And what we need to understand is, yes, bad things happen in churches. There is abuse in churches. Pastors abuse their authority. Many of you have come from churches, have been in churches where there was abuse by the clergy. But that is not all churches or even most churches. And it is not a reason to throw away legitimate authority within the church, okay? And so Christians that are living in this transgressive age, Christians that are living in an age that seeks to break down everything that is old or everything that came before, need to understand that God has established within his church structures of authority, and those structures of authority are there for the flourishing of his people. So what is... Peter go on to say, Peter describes how God's people are sheep and those sheep need shepherds and that God has chosen and called elders to fulfill that need. Listen in verse 2, shepherds, the shepherd, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Listen, there is a reason that God describes his people as sheep. And it's not because we're adorable. <laughs> it's hard to understand why God calls us sheep when you're just watching sheep memes on Instagram and they're adorable. And you're like, what? That's, of course I'm like that. I'm fluffy and adorable and cute. And no, 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 no. God calls us sheep because we're stupid. I mean, let's be real. Sheep are uniquely dumb in the animal kingdom. Okay? This is one of the real reasons that I don't really believe in evolution because sheep could not have evolved like that. Like, sheep have to have a shepherd or they will die. Here's some interesting things about, like, horses can, like, run free as mustangs and be awesome. Cows, you can leave a cow alone. I've seen some rangy, nasty-looking cows in some third-world countries that I've been to, and they're okay. They'll eat tin cans, and they look all scrawny, but they'll basically do okay. A sheep? Nope. 
The behavior of sheep, this is what uh, Philip Keller said. He said, the behavior of sheep and human beings is similar in many ways. Sheep do not just take care of themselves, as some might, uh, might suppose. They require more attention than any other class of livestock, and endless attention. For example, God has created most animals with an uncanny instinct to find their way home. I remember my wife's dad had a, had a horse, and he would go and ride over to his friend's house, and you could pretty much let that horse, he would just take you all the way back home. And it would go faster home than it would to where you were over you were going. But if sheep stray into unfamiliar territory, they become completely disoriented and can't find their way back. Not only that, but there's a video that's out there. I wish I had put it up there. There's a video of a sheep, right? The sheep, they wander off. They get stuck into crevices. They get stuck into holes. There's a video of a guy, and you see this dude. He's got like... He's reaching down into this hole. You're like, what is this guy doing? He's, he ends up starting putting, you're like, oh man, he's got a sheep. And he's pulling this sheep out. He gets the sheep and he pulls it all the way out of the crevice. And the sheep is there and, it, and the sheep is so grateful for being rescued that it shakes him off and jumps right back into the crevice. <laughs> Who does that sound like? Sheep need a shepherd to guide them and provide for them to protect them and sometimes to rescue them from our... I even read where if you take a sheep and if a sheep falls asleep facing downhill, it is physically incapable of getting up. It will starve to death and die because it's facing downhill. And that is who God describes us as. What does that mean? Well, throughout the Old Testament, God describes his people as a flock. And he's the one that's got to take care of us. Right? And he describes how he raises up men to serve as his under-shepherds. He's like, okay, I'm the cheap shepherd, and I've got some kind of guys that I brought along, and they're going to help me do my job. God leads his sheep through danger and death to good pastures, even though we are prone to lost, to becoming lost. God says, he promises his nation, I will rescue my flock, they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. All of this is supposed to point to the day when Jesus Christ, the true shepherd, the real shepherd, comes and rescues his sheep and leads them. In the New Testament, this imagery is fulfilled by Jesus, the good shepherd. He is the shepherd that leaves the 99 and goes, find that one, goes and finds that one stupid sheep that's crawled into the hole and doesn't want to come out. The sheep hear his voice and they respond to him. At the culmination of his ministry, he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Finally, in one of his final conversations on earth, he hands off the care and guidance of his earthly flock back to the human shepherds. And you know who he did that to? Peter. Peter, the man who had abandoned him, the man who had 
cussed multiple times at people that associated them together. What did he say? He said, after he had restored Peter, after he'd come and found him and had breakfast with him, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And we read that Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Oh, brothers and sisters, when we read Peter preaching and exhorting the shepherds that have been set over the church that he has established, you've got to know that Peter was remembering those instructions that he received. I, I've been watching the, the... I've been watching... The Chosen. So many of you have also started watching The Chosen. It's a fantastic show. And, and while I'm not looking forward to the end in, I think, like four years when it comes to an end and there's going to be the crucifixion and all that, I, I really hope we get to see this scene. It is, to me, one of the most poignant scenes in Scripture. I can't read it without crying. And yet Peter, this man who has been restored by Christ and given, given the charge to feed God's sheep, begins to use the same language talking to the elders and he begins to tell them, elders oversee the flock of God through the teaching of God's word. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. This is the role of the elder. Not to be the ruler, not to sit on a, a throne but to teach the Word so that God's people can be equipped to do the work of God in season and out of season. That, that phrase pops out at me over and over again. It's one of the phrases that I use with guys that I'm teaching and preparing to preach. This idea of preaching the Word in season and out of season Very few of you know how hard it is to preach to God's people. You go through and put in countless hours preparing. And there were years of my life, as I served at a small church, where there might be three or four people in the congregation. Brothers, it's hard to preach to three or four people in a congregation. I can remember sitting in the car preparing to go into church having spent, it felt like my life's blood, and being like, what am I going to do if there's nobody there? The elder must be ready in season and out of season. They must reprove and rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Sometimes the job is to encourage. Sometimes the job is to call out. But always it must be done with patience. This is why an elder must be an apt teacher of the Word of God, because it is the Word of God that is responsible for the lion's work of an elder's duty. Listen to me, I have no wisdom. I've got some old stories. 
I've got some sort of funny jokes. But nothing good in the things that I do come from me. Everything comes from the Scripture. Right? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God might be fully equipped for every good work. That's the tool, y'all. That is the number one tool in church growth and church revitalization is God's Word and prayer. If you come to me looking for marriage counseling, you're going to hear me say this. I'm a one-trick pony. All I have is God's Word. If you're looking for something else, you got to go someplace else. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Elders lead the people of God through the careful and prayerful exposition of God's Word. They care for the church by emulating Jesus. There's the ones that are supposed to be out front serving and living out the implications of the gospel. It's why Moses didn't get to enter the promised land. You ever think about that, what Moses did? Moses was a faithful servant of God's word for 80 years. He heard God speaking from a burning bush. He led God's people through the water. He received the word from the mountain and then interceded for the people when they messed up over and over and over and over and over and over again. And on probably the worst day of his life, when his sister had just died and they had been wandering around in the desert for who knows how long, the people came to him, they went to Kadesh Barnea, the same place that they came every year because they're literally walking in circles in the desert. They come to the same place, and you know what the people did? They whined, where's the water, Moses? Why do we have to do this? It's so hot out here. That's what camp sounds like, by the way. <laughs> I don't like this food that we can get from God for free. We want to go back to slavery because it was better there. Mm. And Moses, who knows that they're in the desert because these guys wouldn't go into the promised land when they were offered the opportunity, looks at them and loses it. He takes the staff of office that God's given him, and instead of raising it up over the rock to make the water come out the way he does every time, he hits the stone and says, why should I make the water come out? Now, I've never experienced anger like that at God's people, but I can imagine what it would be like. You know what happens to Moses? Because of that moment, he doesn't get to enter the promised land. Oh, brothers and sisters, there is a fearful responsibility in eldership because you are responsible for God's sheep, but you can't ever beat God's sheep. You can't ever abuse God's sheep. You can't ever take advantage of God's sheep because they don't belong to you. They belong to God. Oh, eldership is important. And so Peter goes on to describe the ways in which an elder should minister. He said that they should minister willingly. Not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have them. While it is true that 
God places a call on the lives of some men to serve the church as an elder. It should never be due to the expectation of a community or obligation. Elder is not an inherited role. There is no guarantee that the son of a pastor will be a pastor or should be a pastor. Eldership is something worthwhile to strive for and should be rewarded by God's people with an extra measure of respect, but it's never something that should be compelled. It's something that should be done selflessly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. No one would seek a position of eldership as a way to make money. Trust me, guys, there's way easier ways to make money than this. Ministers of the gospel have every right to be compensated by the gospel by those who they minister to. After all, Jesus said a worker is worth his wages, but it should not be the reason that a person goes into ministry. Most importantly, elders are to lead their people by their example, not domineering over those who are in their charge, but being examples to the flock. God's people cannot be driven. They have to be led. Obedience can't be compelled. It has to be drawn out. And so Jesus has sent his church into the world as sheep among wolves, and he has provided elders to shepherd them through the crises that come. Listen to me, guys. God's people are desperately in need of godly men to serve as elders within the church. The epidemic of highly publicized leadership failures is the result of us elevating the wrong people to eldership. We are seeking men to be pastors who have no business being pastors because we're looking at the wrong things. Oh, he's a wonderful communicator. That's cool. He's also deeply unfaithful to his wife. So it doesn't matter how much his words are communicating, his actions are communicating something totally different. We've elevated men to be superstars. Well, listen to me. The guys that can be superstars can't necessarily shepherd God's people. And so when we elevate people to positions that they have no business having, we can't be surprised when everything falls apart on them. It is not fair to that person. When you become a pastor, when you become an elder, you get a target on your back. And the more important you are, the bigger deal you are, the bigger the target is. So when we take unqualified men and elevate them rapidly to places that they have no business being, why are we surprised when they fall into sin? We have set them up to do it. The other thing we're doing, guys, is we're placing requirements on our elders that were never supposed to be there. No church should rest completely on the abilities of one man. If your church's model, if this church's model is based on me being an awesome communicator and an all-around neato guy, guess what? We're in trouble. Because I'm a human being and I will fail. Probably the best example of this is Mars Hill Church. Mark Driscoll was a fantastic, and still is a fantastic communicator, an amazing pastor who built a 
ridiculously huge church, huge church by ministering to unchurched people in the most hostile environment in the United States, Seattle. I want you to think about what it takes to build a multi-thousand church, person church in Seattle while not apostatizing or giving away the doctrines of the faith. The entire church was based on him, and so when he resigned... The entire church folded in two weeks. And thousands and thousands of people were without a church home. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have to be wise about the men that we elevate and the way that we elevate them because elders are essential to the church and they must minister in the expectation of of Christ's imminent return. Peter concludes this way. He says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. He's reminding the leaders that those churches, that their flock do not belong to them, but belong to Jesus, not the elder, that the true shepherd will ultimately return to gather his flock, and the shepherds will be judged based on their service. See, I'm a shepherd, an elder, an overseer, but God's sheep don't belong to me. I'm working for somebody else, and someday he's going to come back, And he's going to look at the flock, and in the words of I Love Lucy, I'm going to have some splaining to do. (laughs) Understand that, guys. I will be called to account for what you do and have failed to do. I will be called to account for whether or not this church is evangelistic, for the way that it serves. I had a conversation once with a member of the church. It got kind of heated. And this woman told me, said, you know, we came to a decision. And she, she said, well, that's on you, pastor. And I said, yes, it is. It's always on me. And it always will be on me. Oh, brothers and sisters, P- Peter wants to close his letter by reminding Christian leaders to lead well in the face of persecution. And and I want you to understand this, the generation that Peter was talking to, the generation of leaders after the disciples endured tremendous strain and were called to make incredible sacrifices, these men served heroically and died in obscurity as faithful shepherds of their master's flock and they delivered to us, the church, generations of sacrificial elders have provided to us the doctrines of grace and mercy. And so we need to understand, guys, that one of the essential roles of the church is training up men to shepherd the flock of God. Every Christian is a sheep in the flock of God, and sheep need good shepherds, and it is the job of the church to raise them up. And so as we lifted that little baby up to you, I want you to take seriously the charge that's been laid on you. It is our job to raise up men to be elders in this church and in other churches. We do that by discipleship. This isn't a game. It's not just something we do on Sunday mornings. This is a life that we are calling people to. Because an elder's job is to teach the truth, and they cannot teach the truth if they do not know the truth. 
We are coming into a time, as the scripture says, when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears and will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. A time when they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And if we are not training strong men of faith to guard the flock, then we will all wander off. Oh, brothers and sisters, shun sweet talkers who want to flatter you or tickle your ears. Beware of anyone who tells you you're not as bad a sinner as Scripture tells you you are. Beware of anyone who seeks to accommodate the sinful culture that we live in. Raise up men of character and integrity. How do we do this? It starts by you guys being good sheep for the shepherd. Good sheep submit to the appropriate authority of the elders. Don't be a bad sheep. It's really hard. (laughs) Good sheep support their elders financially, prayerfully, physically, emotionally. Almost more importantly, good sheep support the families of their elders. One of the elders, the qualifications of eldership in the church is that they lead their family well and have a strong marriage. This is because the pastor's family and elder's family is the first place that the devil attacks the church. Long days and late nights strain relationships at home. Time spent ministering to the needs of others is not spent ministering to the pastor's children or the pastor's wife. I need you to understand this, guys. It is super easy as a pastor to gain the approval of the people that he serves at the expense of the people that he loves. The easiest job in the world to worship is the pastoring job. There are tons of examples of pastors, famous pastors, famous missionaries who have neglected their families. We're reading about David Livingston right now. Famous Christian missionary, fantastic sounding guy, until you realize that he'd never spent any time with his children and never spent any time with his wife. Now, brothers and sisters, eldership is a worthy office in the church, and we should seek to lift up godly men for service in God's kingdom. Churches should raise up and empower elders from within our congregation. This isn't just one way to do this. This is the preferred way to do this. And so as we prepare to close, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about everything that we do here with our children's ministry and our youth ministry. These are opportunities for us to raise up ministers, missionaries, and servants of the church. I read a quote once by a man who said, A society becomes great when old men plant trees, the shade of which they will never enjoy. Brothers and sisters, every child that you invest in, in this church, every young person that you invest in, in this church, every young person and child that grows up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord will be a shade tree that you are planting, the shade of which you may not enjoy. The world that we live in is hostile. And the job that we have been given is hard. And so pray with and for those that have been raised up into leadership. 
And if you feel God calling you into leadership within the church, listen to that call. Now understand this. Eldership is an honor and a privilege. But being a church member is also an honor and a privilege. And none of these things can happen for a person that does not know Christ. Often the times we have problems in churches are because those that have been elevated to leadership within the church do not know Christ as Lord and Savior. And so I want to challenge you today. If you have never made a profession of faith in Christ, if you do not know the true shepherd and haven't given your life to him, now is the time. If you don't know what it means to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, come forward. We'd love to talk to you about what that looks like. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. This is the time for us to respond to the call of God on our lives. The time to say yes to the things that God is asking you to do. So I'm going to ask some of our deacons to come forward here. Shannon, if you'd come forward up front here. And if you feel the Lord moving your life as we sing this song, as we stand and we sing it, I would ask you to come forward. We'll pray for you. We'll share the gospel with you. We'll tell you how you can become a member of this church. I don't know where God is leading you this morning, but I know that he is leading you to something. So stand now as we pray and remain standing as we sing our song of invitation. Oh Lord, God, I ask that you would be with us this morning. God, that you would watch over us and keep us. Lord, be with those men that are being raised up for eldership. For our deacons and our elders and our members of the church. God, that you would work in this congregation. That we would be able to endure the persecution that is coming. And like Peter and that church long ago, oh Lord, that we would be good witnesses to your glory as we wait for you to return. God, we ask these things in your holy name. Amen.